Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hope Church, Toronto West. It is our prayer that through these audio sermons, you are challenged and transformed by the Word of God, built up in love and faith, and drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now as you prepare your heart to receive God's Word, we pray that His Spirit would use the sermon powerfully in your life. Well, Happy New Year, Hope Church, Toronto West. Uh, it's the first Sunday after Christmas, and I, uh, I was looking back, and I've actually had the privilege of preaching on this Sunday for the last several years. It's a special Sunday, the Sunday after uh, Christmas at church. It's a special Sunday because uh, you get to look at some special passages, particularly passages that happen after the manger. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at one of those passages, and it's kind of like getting bonus episodes in the season, kind of like an epilogue, um, epilogue to the Christmas series. So today we'll be in Luke chapter 2, verse 41 to 52, and I invite you to turn there right now, Luke 2, 41 to 52. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hands and one of our ushers will be glad to get a Bible to you. Now, as you're turning there, I want to give you some context of where we are in Luke. Uh, in the story right before our story today, we see uh, uh, Jesus' presentation at the temple. He's only 40 days old at this point, so baby Jesus, less than two months old. And amazingly, we actually don't learn, uh, we don't learn almost anything about the first 12 years of Jesus' life. Luke just summarizes the first 12 years of his life in one little verse, the verse before our text. Look down, Luke chapter 2, verse 40. He says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. In this little verse, we just get the a summary of the first 12 years of Jesus's life. Uh, and in our passage, we see the next episode. This is Jesus after the manger. This is Jesus after diapers. Uh, we get a story of 12-year-old Jesus. Uh, here's an amazing fact. This story that we're going to look at today, our passage today, is the only episode of Jesus's adolescence, the only episode of his childhood. It's the only incident in all of scripture in between diapers and manger and his ministry. You see, this is before manhood and ministry, but after the manger. This is not manger Jesus, but it's also not ministry man Jesus. This is boy Jesus. This is the final episode of the overarching story of Jesus' birth and childhood the boy Jesus, the boy Jesus. And that's the, uh, the, the title of our sermon today. Let's read this beautiful story, Luke chapter 2, verse 41 to 52, starting verse 41. It says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him uh, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, 
Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Luke starts our story by giving us the setting. He gives us the character. Uh, the, he gives us the time and the place. Uh, verse 41 starts by giving us a look at Mary and Joseph and the spiritual rhythms of this godly family. See, the story starts with a family trip to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Remember, the, the Passover feast was the most important annual festival in the life of God's people. It commemorated how God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Uh, interestingly enough, every year, as per custom, only the Jewish men were required to, to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. But it says in our text that every year, both Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. It showed how devout their faith was. Now, because they went every year, because both of them went every year, this probably wasn't Jesus's first trip to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. However, this year, at age 12, this trip was different. Look at verse 42. It says, they went up according to custom. Custom. What was that custom? You see, Jesus' 12-year-old Passover was a special one. Here's why. Well, according to custom, 13-year-old Jewish boys were brought to Jerusalem for their bar mitzvah ceremony. R.C. Sproul explains this on the screen. He says, this was the age at which the Jewish boy became a man and went through their bar mitzvah, uh, sorry, went through the bar mitzvah, which simply means son of the commandment, entering into the full measure of adult commitment to the covenant of Moses. Now they're entering into adult covenant. Now, at 12 years old in our story, obviously Jesus is still one year away from his bar mitzvah his coming of age ceremony, but there was customs for 12-year-olds too. Uh, R.C. Sproul explains what's going on here again. He says, it was customary in ancient Israel for boys to be taken to the temple a year or two in advance of their bar mitzvah so that they might become familiar with the operations of the temple and of the educational programs of the rabbis there. It was almost like a trial run, a time of orientation, so that a child, when he did reach 13, would have some preparation. So Jesus went to Jerusalem at 12, perhaps for his initial orientation of the structures and customs of the temple. So this is a special trip. This was his frosh week. This was his orientation week. This was his coming of age orientation week. And, and Phil Riken helps to paint a picture of the sights and sounds of and what Jerusalem would be like. And it's so important for us as we're reading a biblical narrative to try to get back to the there and then. And so just picture this scene uh, with me. Uh, Riken writes, uh, uh, it should be on the screen, going to the Passover must have been a great experience for a 12-year-old boy. The streets of Jerusalem were crammed with as many as 200,000 pilgrims and 100,000 sheep for sacrifices. 
At that age, Jesus may well have had the run of the city with all its sights and sounds. He would have feasted with friends. He would have gone up to the temple to pray and sing psalms. On the night of the Passover, he would have worshipped with his family. As his father prepared the sacrificial lamb, Jesus would have heard the story of salvation all over again. Joseph would have reminded his elder son how God rescued his people from slavery and delivered them from death in Egypt. See, this was the full, historical, tactile, immersive Jerusalem that a 12-year-old boy Jesus would have brought, uh, would have uh, would have been brought to at Passover. It was a special festival for a coming of age, of com- and a special coming of age for boy Jesus. And I hope we can already see what our first point is. Here's our first point for today. Uh, Jesus was fully boy. Jesus was fully boy. In fact, this is how he's described in verse 43. Can you look at verse 43 again? It says, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. The boy Jesus stayed. I love that phrase, the boy Jesus. He was a real boy. I don't know about you, but sometimes when we read about Jesus in the Gospels, we treat him like he is some mythical figure who lived in some far out place, in some far out time, who was was this man who always had the answers. But let's just pause and observe. This story is such a grounded story. It's a boy on a trip with his family to the big city for a big festival and feast to take part in orientation week for his coming of age bar mitzvah ceremony. So grounded. And and, and just step back and think about how Luke got the story in the first place. Remember, in Luke 1, Luke says that this is a compilation of eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. Luke 1 1 verse 2. And that means this is probably a story told directly by Mary. I mean, take a look down in our text at verse 51. It says, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. How else would Luke know this and be able to write it down if he hadn't been told by Mary herself? In other words, the story you have in your hands is uh, probably comes from an aging mother reminiscing about her little boy when he was growing up 20 years ago. And she's metaphorically sitting with Luke with the photo albums open and kind of flipping through and saying, this was my little boy. Oh, this is that time we went to Jerusalem, telling the story of that time her 12-year-old boy got lost on their family trip to the Passover in Jerusalem. Once again, it grounds us and it reminds us, Jesus was a real boy who got left behind in Jerusalem amidst all the hustle and bustle. I think I know where Home Alone got their plot from wasn't just some legend. He wasn't just some figure, a figment of uh, 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 some mythical person. He was a real boy. Uh, He was fully boy on a full out adventure. Uh, Let's get, let's pick up our story again. Verse 43, read this with me. It says, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. 
boy Jesus stayed behind. <laughs> the text says his parents didn't know. His parents didn't know. Uh, as a parent, just reading that slowly puts a little bit of a lump in my throat. Now, at first glance, uh, we can ask as modern people, like, how could they not have known? They must have really been negligent parents, weren't they? <laughs> now, just to give some context, it was customary at the time to travel in large caravans with family and friends. This was for both companionship and safety, safety in numbers. And it was customary for the women and the small children to travel at the front of the caravan and for the men and the older sons to be at the back of the caravan. So it would have been very easy for each parent to assume Jesus was with the other. So we don't have negligent parents here. They're conscientious, they're devout, they're responsible parents. And they weren't, they weren't parents who lost their child because they were scrolling Instagram on their phone. A quick application here. It just this, this text reminds us again to always take off our Western glasses when we're reading scripture. We want to read everything in historical context. See, the caravan was a normal part of life. And it also shows us an intimate, vibrant spiritual community that we can aspire to as a church. A happy fellowship of family and friends who worship God and love to serve him together. Man, I want that. The story continues in saying that they went a whole day's journey before realizing Jesus wasn't with them. That, that's insane. That's as if the Chia family got in the car, took a road trip to New York City, drove back, and we're on the road trip with a bunch of you guys, for example. We drive back, get to the border, and we're like, has anyone seen Hannah? Chris, have you seen Hannah? Natalia, have you seen Hannah anywhere? Mally, have you seen Hannah? Imagine the scene. And then realizing, no, we don't have her. And saying, we got to drive all the way back to New York City. Another day's journey. Imagine the worry that sets in with Mary and Joseph. Once you realize your boy is gone, you left him behind. So on day two, Mary and Joseph go all the way back. They take another full day's journey back to Jerusalem. And after one day of searching, they finally find Jesus in the temple on day three. Day three. He was missing for three days. Boy, Jesus lost in Jerusalem. As a parent, I just can't help but wonder, like, where did he sleep that whole time? What did he eat? I mean, all his friends and family were in the caravan. Uh, he was 12. Jesus was a real boy. And you, you can feel the tension if you really read the story the way Luke wants it read, with all the drama that it carries. Peek down at verse 48 in our text. Um, Mary captures what any parent would be feeling throughout, throughout this whole ordeal, because when they find Jesus, verse 48, Mary says, Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. In 21st century terms, we have been worried sick about you. It's been three days. It's such a relatable, grounded story. A, a couple of years ago, I officiated a wedding, and I was talking to the parents of the bride. They were telling me stories of, uh, of the bride growing up. But the most vivid, vivid story was this family trip. They went to another country. They went to this tourist site. She went in ahead of them. They went in a, a different exit, and then they popped out, and she was nowhere to be found. And, and they thought the worst. They were like, oh, my goodness. She probably lost for 10 minutes, but it felt, like, it felt like an eternity. And the funny thing about that story was she was telling it like it, it happened yesterday. It's so vivid in the mind. It's such a grounded story. 
See, Jesus, Jesus wasn't some mythical figure in some far off place. He wasn't just some legend who shows up on the scene as a fully formed 30 year old ministry man, Jesus. Sometimes you can read the gospels and treat Jesus like you're reading about Hercules. He's not that. He's not some mythical figure. He was a real person. And in this story, clearly he's a real boy, a real full boy. Just imagine again, Mary recounting the story of his childhood. And you, and if you asked her, you know, was Jesus a real person, a real human? She'd be like, yep, he was a real boy. All right. Got lost in Jerusalem at 12. He was a living, walking 12 year old boy. Sinless boy, but still fully and truly boy. Jesus was fully boy. That's our first point. Now, in one sense, it's not very groundbreaking in and of its own, is it? If Jesus were just some regular historical figure, this would just be another anecdote from his childhood. It's entertaining, but not earth chattering. But as we'll soon see in our story, Jesus wasn't just a regular boy. See, he wasn't just fully boy. He was also fully God. And that's our second point. Boy, Jesus was fully God. Boy, Jesus was fully God. Let's read on. Take a look at verse 46. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? See, finally, Mary and Joseph, they find Jesus in the temple. He's just sitting with the teachers, listening, asking questions. Um, and R.C. Sproul, again, it helps to give us some background. Picture the scene. He says, after the feast, it was custom for the theologians of Israel to remain there for a few days to have what they called theological disputations, in which they would share the latest ideas and insights into theology. The students of the rabbis would sit at their feet, for their learning process was very similar to that of Socrates and Plato at the academy. It was through questions and answers. The students would ask the rabbi questions, and at times as a teaching technique, the rabbi would return questions to the students. It was in that situation that Jesus was found astonishing everybody with his unbelievable understanding and insight in these things. And all who saw him were amazed. Questions back and forth between rabbi and boy Jesus. But when boy Jesus is giving answers and questioning back, they're amazed, they're astonished. Jesus was, he amazed everyone. He was deducing things from scripture they had never heard. And his parents themselves were astonished by the whole scene. But before long, Mary finally lets all her anxiety out and concern. And she says, son, why have you treated a soul? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Hey, this is the main plot line after all in this story, a lost boy in Jerusalem. But at this point, we get the first recorded words of Jesus, the youngest recorded words of Jesus, at least. And in Jesus' reply to his mother, we learn that he is so much more than an ordinary boy lost in Jerusalem. See, his reply goes like this. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? At first glance, you may think, but oh, Jesus, what a smart aleck. I thought he was sinless. But Jesus here isn't being a smart aleck or sinning here. He's almost saying, you were looking for me, but I was sitting in the living room in my father's house the whole time. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I've lost my kids before. I'm like, where's Ben? Where's Ben? And then I feel a tug on my pants. And I look down, he goes, I'm right here, daddy. 
And, and, I look, and, and I'm like, oh, all right, that makes sense. Right beside daddy, where else would he be? And it makes sense where Jesus was. I mean, put the story beside the rest of the stories in Luke 1 to 2. Uh, Jesus is the child of the virgin birth. The angels have proclaimed that Jesus is Christ the Lord. Why would anyone expect anything else? Didn't you know that he had to be in his father's house? Did you check the playground and the swimming pool first? This should have been the first place you looked. See, Jesus is not a rebellious, smart aleck. In fact, telling from his, uh, from his response, he knows something deep about who he is. And, you, and we see two things from his response. You're just stunning. The first thing you see is that he knows he's the son of God. Uh, look at the ver- verse 50 again. He says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? My father's house. My father. Uh, let's not gloss over this too quickly. Phil Riken helps us here. It's on the screen. He says, Jesus referred to God as my father. This intimate expression was totally new. No one had ever said anything like it before. To be sure, the fatherhood of God is present in the Old Testament. There are at least a dozen places where the scripture refers to God as father. However, those who are speaking always refer to themselves in the plural. That is, people spoke to God as our father, but no one ever called him my father. God's paternity was a more general concept than a personal relationship. Even men like Moses and David, who enjoyed special intimacy with God, never dared to claim that he was their father. But Jesus said it as if it were the most natural thing in the world. If the temple was God's house, then it was his father's house, because he knew that God was his father. Jesus was speaking like no one else ever did. My father. And it shows us this, that boy Jesus, even at 12 years old, knew confidently who he was. He didn't just, as Riken puts it, have vague stirrings of his own identity. He knew who he was. With full confidence, he is essentially saying, I am the son of my father. Put another way, Jesus in this little reply to Mary is already saying something groundbreaking. He's saying, I am the son of God. I know who I am. I'm the son of God. The boy Jesus was fully God. Picture a 12-year-old. And he knows, I'm the son of God. Crazy. R.C. Sproul uh, comments, he says, how significant that the first recorded words of Jesus are the ones that go to the heart of his own destiny, to his vocation and calling as the Messiah. Here, Jesus is consciously identifying himself as the son of God because it was his father's house. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Boy, Jesus was fully God. So he had to be in his father's house. In fact, he says, I must be in my father's house. I must be. I must be. And that's the second thing this little reply tells us. It's these two little words, I must be in my father's house. Tell us a little bit about Jesus' longing to be with his father. I must be in my father's house. See, in him saying, I must be there, he's not just stating a fact. He's not just saying, hey, by the way, I'm the son of God. He's saying, He's stating his heart's longing. I long to be in my father's presence. He had this deep compulsion to be with the father. Why? Because think about it. He's God the son, the second member of the Trinity. And therefore he's been with the father from the beginning of time. Phil Riken writes, he wanted to stay in his father's presence, lingering at his place where his heart could echo the joy he had always experienced as the eternal 
preexistent Son. See, long before God the Son was born in human flesh, He had a pre-incarnate glory as a member of the Godhead, a perfect fellowship with the Father from the beginning of time. In fact, a grown-up Jesus would talk about that very time, his pre-incarnate glory uh, uh, from the, that he had with the Father from the very beginning. Just a couple of texts that helped to round it out. John 17, verse 5, uh, an, a grown-up Jesus praying, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. He's had a love relationship and glory with the Father that dated back to the beginning of time. Luke 17, 24, he says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. (laughs) And now in the temple, in his father's house, boy, Jesus is recovering a taste of what he's had from the beginning of time. And and all of that happening with just this 12-year-old boy, Jesus, in the temple, God the Son, who has been with the Father from the beginning of time, now in 12-year-old flesh. I'm going to say that again. I, you're probably sensing me stammering right now because I don't fully, it, it's, it's so hard to comprehend. God the Son, who existed from the beginning of time with the Father, now dwelling in 12-year-old flesh, longing to be back with God the Father. Can you just pause and think about how stunning this is? I don't have any other application point than, than just pause and think about this because it's, it's, it's a marvel. God the Son, who created every atom in that, te- in that temple room, who was holding all things together, was a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> just pause and chew on this. God the Son, who was before all things, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He is sitting in that room as a 12-year-old boy. When you stop and think about it, it is absolutely staggering. It's precious and it's stunning, and when you really think about it. But not only is it precious and stunning, it's also a bit of a mystery. And that's our final point for today. The final point is this. The hypostatic union is a profound mystery, but also a profound treasure. The hypostatic union is a profound mystery, but also a profound treasure. Sorry, I just threw a whole bunch of theological words in this last point. But so let me just review what we've been learning in this entire incarnation series. Two definitions. The first incarnation on the screen. um, We've seen this over over the last few weeks. Incarnation is the word used to explain how the second member of the Trinity entered into human flesh as the God man, Jesus Christ, Today, we modify our definition to say as the God boy, Jesus Christ. He was God, he was God and boy then as well. Now, that's what the incarnation is. Here's the second definition that we've seen before. It's the hypostatic union. Let's throw that on the screen. Um, it basically says two things. First, Jesus Christ has two natures, humanity and deity. And the second, Jesus is not two persons. Both natures are mysteriously and miraculously united in one person. Summary of the hypostatic union, one person, two natures. One person, two natures. The the hypostatic union tells us that neither nature gobbles up the other. In other words, Christ's humanity doesn't get gobbled up by his deity. And Christ's deity doesn't get gobbled up by his humanity. He is fully God and fully human. He's not like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where he's God, where, where he's God sometimes and human another, or to use, I guess, the, the more, uh, you know, contemporary example. He's not, he's not Hulk. He's not the Incredible Hulk. He's not Bruce Banner sometimes or the Hulk sometimes. He's fully God and fully man at all times. Now, 
This can seem a little bit academic, but the beautiful thing about the biblical story is the hypostatic comes, union comes to us in story form right here in this story. Let's keep reading uh, the last bit of our story. Let's pick it up from verse 49. It says, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Um, can you just look at the contrast between verse 49 and 50? Look at verse 49 and 50. Verse 49, Jesus had just said, I must be in my father's house. In other words, I'm the son of God. I long to be in my father's presence, a presence I've had since the beginning of time. And at that, Jesus and Mary don't understand what he's saying. I'm not sure if they understood who Jesus truly was. And the God boy Jesus stops and he looks into the face of his befuddled, confused, mere mortal parents and proceeds to go down with them returned to Jerusalem and was submissive to them. And moreover, he was submissive in a Nazareth carpenter's workshop for the next 18 years. Just picture it. The God of the universe. In the beginning was the word. The word was God. And the word was with God. The God of the universe looks into the eyes of his confused befuddled, mortal, created parents and proceeds to choose submission to them for the next 18 years. It's no wonder that in verse 50, it says Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. Again, imagine an elderly Mary after the cross and resurrection, recounting stories to Luke, but being in utter awe. By the way, it's not the first time in Luke, it says that Mary treasured these things in her heart. She's looking back and she's in awe. How could it be that I carried God in my womb? How could it be that I held God in my arms as a baby? How could it be that God lived in my house? God lived, traveled in my caravan. God used the bathroom, the front bathroom of our house. Imagine her metaphorically looking back through the memory photo album and wondering, how could it be that my perfect 12-year-old boy, even though he was God, chose to submit to Joseph and I? How could it be that my creator chose to submit to his befuddled creation? How could it be that God, who lived in my house, and I, and I said, go put the dishes away, would do it? Yeah, do you see how? It's, a, it's stunning. How could it be that God, who lived in my house, and I said, go to bed, would go to bed? And you know what? And Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. And we should treasure them too, by the way. We should be in awe too. The God of the universe, staring into the eyes of his befuddled, confused, earthly parents, and choosing to humble and submit himself. Absolute wow. Just quick application, by the way. Many of us have trouble with submitting to others. But Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But man, take a look at how Christ is submitting. We often tell ourselves, you know what? I know more than those people, so I'm not going to submit to them. Hey, Jesus doesn't do that here. Jesus knows a lot more than Joseph and Mary, especially he's looking at their, confusing fa their confused faces. Yet he chose to submit himself. 
We tell ourselves, hey, they're misunderstanding who I am and what I'm about, so I'm not going to submit. But Jesus doesn't do that here. Mary and Joseph don't understand at all what Jesus is saying about himself in the temple, yet he chose to submit. Um, when we submit to one another out of reverence of Christ, we submit the way Christ did as an act of humility, love, honor, and service to the other person. Not only when we feel seen or understood or when we're confident that they, more, they know more than we do, because Jesus did it first. We're stunned that the creator God would choose to submit himself to created parents. 12-year-old boy Jesus, fully boy yet fully God, choosing to submit to created man. This hypostatic union is a profound mystery, but also a profound treasure. It is absolutely mind-blowing. And we see this in his submission to his parents. Finally, however, we don't just see the profound mystery in how he submits to his parents. We also see the profound mystery in the final verse. Look at verse 52. It says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Read that first bit again. And Jesus increased in wisdom. And Jesus increased in wisdom. Wait, what? Look, when we think of adult Jesus, let's, let's be honest, we almost never think of him increasing in wisdom, right? Like we picture his interactions with his Pharisees and with his disciples and be like, He's, he's, he's reached level 100. There's no more levels to get. Like, he's, he's got all the answers, right? There's no more, wi- what, what, what wisdom does, does he have to gain? When we think of, that's usually how we read, when we read out old Jesus. We don't think of him as increasing in wisdom. But this 12-year-old Jesus reminds us again, he was fully man and 12-year-olds, fully boy. And he had a hu- fully human mind. Now, that may sound elementary, by the way. But we tend to forget it. Sometimes we can even go towards heresy. (laughs) Sometimes when we think about Jesus and his debating with the the Pharisees, this is how we often think. We think, Jesus arguing with the Pharisees. There goes Jesus again. The Pharisees have no match for him. He's undebatable. He's unstumpable. That's what you get when you have a divine mind or a divine spirit wrapped up in a human body. By the way, that last line is actually heresy. It's called Apollinarianism. On the screen, what's Apollinarianism? It's the false teaching that Jesus had the mind of God in the mind of a body, in the mind, in the body of a man. Apollinarianism is a heresy that basically teaches he had a human body, but not a human mind. He had the mind of God. But the problem with Apollinarianism is that it denies that Jesus was fully human with a human mind. It denies the full humanity of Christ. Jesus was not a defined mind in just some human body wrapper. He was fully human. And that means in our, in our story, that means he's a full boy developing intellectually, de- developing physically. Once again, Phil Riken helps us. He says, like his body, the mind of Christ had to develop. If we dealt this, all we need to do is look again at scripture, which says that Jesus increased in wisdom. Here, Luke expressly tells us that the intellectual, moral, and spiritual growth of Jesus as a child was just as real as his physical growth. He was completely subject to the ordinary laws of physical and intellectual development. And then read this last line. As he submitted to the very laws that he had created, Jesus was taught things that he did not know. (laughs) 
Um, I'm going to read it again. As he submitted to the laws that he had created, Jesus was taught things that he did not know. It is, it's mind-boggling to think about it. In the beginning was the Word, God the Son. The Word became flesh. That's Jesus Christ. And now in this 12-year-old fleshly form, the Word is learning the Word. Jesus in his divine nature was the author of this Word from the beginning, but Jesus in his, full, is, in his human nature is learning it. It's absolutely staggering. Why? Because he has two natures. Some of you will hear that, by the way, and think, ah, that's not very staggering. You may be thinking, it's not that staggering because this is how I understand Jesus' incarnation. When I read Philippians 2, it says that Jesus emptied himself. And that means he gave up some divine attributes, like omniscience, for example. And that's why we can have a 12-year-old who is learning. He emptied himself of some of his omniscience. That's how I can reconcile all this together. And I need to tell you, by the way, that that's wrong. <laughs> It's not the incarnation, and it's not the hypostatic union. What you just described was a thought process called the kenosis theory. The kenosis theory, it's on the screen, and you may have subscribed to this before. Maybe you're subscribing for it today, and, and we want to actually take a look at it. Kenosis theory is the theory that Christ gave up some of his divine attributes while he was on earth as a man. Um, but here's the problem with the kenosis theory. Ultimately, it denies the full deity of Christ. If he gives up some of his attributes or his nature, then Jesus is not fully God anymore. If the God-man emptied himself, uh, he wouldn't, if the God-man or God-boy, Jesus emptied himself of divine attributes, he would no longer be God. But what the God-boy Jesus did empty himself of was honor and status and privilege, but he never emptied himself of essential attributes or nature. If he did, Jesus Christ would cease to be God. But we know here, even the 12-year-old God-boy knows who he is. He's God even here. So here you have a situation, 12-year-old God boy, he's learning, but he also knows he's God. And so here's how the hypostatic union helps us understand our story today. Jesus is fully boy, 12 years old, with a developing brain, developing body, so he's learning. He's increasing in wisdom. He's acquiring wisdom he didn't have the week before. But Jesus is also fully God, with the full attributes of God, so he is perfect and unchanging in wisdom. Hear what I just said. Jesus is both increasing in wisdom and perfect in wisdom. In this point, <laughs> all at the same time, in the same person. And I wish I could explain to you how that works, but I can. But I think we should all have that posture. We can't comprehend how, how that comes together apart from saying, yep, hypostatic union, one person, two natures. In this story, he is simultaneously Increasing in wisdom, Jesus is both increasing in wisdom and perfect in wisdom all at the same time. Jesus in his full divine nature is omniscient, but Jesus in his human nature is not omniscient. All at the same time and in the same person. Phil Riken, he, he give, tries to give some examples to help. He says, perhaps some examples will help put this into perspective. Consider some of the things that Jesus did not know. When Jesus was two, he was not able to perform the complex computations of differential calculus. He couldn't even solve for X. When he was six, he did not know the percentage of hydrogen in Jupiter's atmosphere or the distance from Earth to Alpha Centauri. Now get this. With respect to his divine nature, these were things that he had always known. But with respect to his human nature, they were among the th many things he did not know during his time on Earth. John Calvin went so far as to say that there would be no impropriety in saying that Christ, who knew all things, was ignorant of something in respect to his, of his perception as a man. 
These statements stagger the mind. If we sometimes take the incarnation for granted, it can only be because we have not wrestled with its full implications. Um, I just, just pause here and think about this truth. Jesus in his divine nature was omniscient. He knew everything. Even 12-year-old boy Jesus. Well, 12-year-old boy Jesus in his human nature was not omniscient. He didn't know everything all at the same time and in the same person. Would we be staggered by this today? Like, can you just bear with me? I know this is heady. <laughs> I know this is like, I know it's like New Year's and we may have had late nights, but, but can you just chew on, like 12-year-old boy Jesus in his divine nature is perfect in wisdom, but in his human nature is increasing in wisdom. That this little, this little phrase, and Jesus increased in wisdom, should make, if your brain feels twisted up, it should. Because Jesus was both omniscient and not omniscient. He was both perfect in wisdom and increasing in wisdom. Because he has two natures. And Jesus in his divine nature, even on earth, he is actively commanding the universe. Yet Jesus in his human nature listens to his mom, cleans his room, and goes to bed on time. That's staggering. I read this the other day. If it's true that Jesus was fully God, did you know that when he was sleeping on the ship underneath as the storm was going, he was still upholding the universe by the word of his power? He was still holding all things together. And then we ask the question, how does he do that? I don't know. <laughs> In the same way, Look at boy Jesus. He's increasing in wisdom. Yet the God who is astonishing everyone. Yet the God who is perfect. Colossians 1 says, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and revelation. By the way, that's true for boy Jesus in this story. Yet he's still increasing in wisdom. How does that work? One person, two natures. And his divine nature, completely omniscient. With respect to his human nature, not omniscient. With respect to his divine nature, perfect in wisdom. With respect to his human nature, increasing in it. The boy Jesus was the God boy. He was the God boy, but also the God boy. Both sides, remaining what was, he became what he was not. And that's a profound mystery and treasure to us. Let's pray. Our Father, um, I thank you for times in which uh, we can't comprehend you because it reminds us that you're incomprehensible. Lord, you're knowable, but you are so far above us. Your ways are higher than our ways uh, that we can't co completely comprehend. We can't, Lord, we, Lord, forgive us. Lord, we take the incarnation for granted. We say, yeah, I understand it. One person, two natures. But man, when we think about it, Lord, it just, it makes me pause. I think, how is this even possible? Yeah, Lord, I pray that we just stop and we turn and we just say, we thank you, God, because it was the only way. It was the only way for you to be our true and final Passover lamb. Lord, we think about this story in Jesus' first Passover. And we can't help but thinking, think about Jesus in his last Passover, where he himself would be the Passover lamb. We think about the story of where how he'd be the son of commandment at his bar mitzvah ceremony, would be an adult of the new covenant, 
or so of, of, of the Mosaic Covenant, but that covenant would only last for another few decades because you'd bring in another one. We think about your last Passover where your blood was going to be shed at the cross to take our place. Or we read this text and we look at how you, you increased in the favor of God all to meet, to get to a point where you're at the cross, where you lose all the favor of God in a moment. You cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that God's wrath that should be on us would be turned to everlasting favor. That at the cross, we got the favor of God. So Lord, we're in some ways, we're, we are befuddled and confused. We're just like Mary and Joseph. I don't understand how that can all work. I don't comprehend how you can be both boy Jesus, increasing in wisdom and perfect in wisdom all at the same time. Yet, we just want to stop and praise you and worship you and thank you because if that were not so, our salvation would not be possible. So we worship you, we thank you, our Savior and our God-man, Jesus, in your most precious name, amen. For more resources and information about Hope Church Toronto West, please visit hopechurchtw.ca.